Nick, I can't believe COVID is still going on. And we also have something called the Delta variant that is basically making all of our numbers go back up again. It's really been a crazy year and a half. I know. And I think one of the things that I'm really happy for is that as I'm like standing in the ante room, getting ready to get all the carb on and going into a room and thinking about like, what do I need to do for this pregnant patient? I have the OBG project resource literally in my pocket on my phone that I can scroll through quickly before I have to put it down and get the gloves on. One of the great things about the OBG project is that you can also subscribe to OBG First, which allows you to create your own bookshelf. It allows you to have all those handy resources right where you want them instead of having to scroll through everything. Chief residents can actually get a free year of OBG First by heading over to our website, creagsovercoffee.com, and checking out the sidebar. Residents in general can also get access to the resident core curriculum for absolutely free. Again, head over to our website, check out the sidebar. You can get all of these resources from the awesome folks at the OBG Project for absolutely free. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is Creogs over, over Coffee. Coffee. All right, so Faye, we've talked about preeclampsia and hypertension in pregnancy before, but today we're going to broaden our horizons and talk about imitators of preeclampsia. What are our learning objectives? So today we're going to review the diagnostic criteria for preeclampsia with and without severe features. But we're also going to identify three conditions which may resemble preeclampsia because even though, you know, preeclampsia is pretty common in pregnancy, not everything is preeclampsia. And then we're going to discuss each of these diagnoses and how they may be differentiated from preeclampsia. Remember, each of these conditions that we're going to discuss today could actually be an episode all on their own. So this is a pretty brief run through, but it's important to keep a broad diagnostic mind open, especially if you feel like the picture doesn't totally add up. Reading for today um, is Dr. Sabai's Imitators of Severe Preeclampsia from 2007, which we'll include on our episode show notes. And also, um, it may be helpful to listen to some of our previous podcasts on hypertension and pregnancy, our trio all the way back from March 2019. All right, Nick. So, I mean, we already talked about this before, but let's discuss diagnosing preeclampsia. How do we do it? Yeah. So, I think kind of in terms of our discussion today, we want to recognize that preeclampsia is a syndrome. And if you remember from the beginnings of medical school, a syndrome is defined as a recognizable complex of symptoms and physical findings that indicate a specific condition, but for which a cause isn't necessarily understood. So preeclampsia, in essence, has a bunch of things that can be present, um, and there are signs and symptoms that define and help us know preeclampsia, but they can overlap with other diseases. I think if you kind of take together hypertension, neurologic changes, pulmonary edema, LFT abnormalities and right upper quadrant pain, thrombocytopenia, acute kidney injury, you know, those things that are the hallmarks of the severe preeclampsia diagnosis, if you put your medicine cap back on and maybe take pregnancy out of the picture, you can probably think of a big differential diagnosis for taking two or three of those symptoms together, right? I mean, off the top of my own head right now, you could think like acute hepatitis or cirrhosis, lupus, meningitis, TTP and HUS, um, drug reactions or overdoses. 
malignant hypertension from something like pheochromocytoma or renal artery stenosis. A heart of failure. I haven't thought about that in a while. Exactly. Heart of failure or heart attack. Um, And again, that's just like a quick smattering, and you could probably think of more if you try. Again, severe preeclampsia is defined as presence of hypertension in pregnancy um, of at least 140 over 90 on two occasions four hours apart can be severe range on its own, 160 over 110, can be in concert with signs of end organ damage, platelets less than 100,000, creatinine greater than 1.1 or double the normal baseline, elevated LFTs twice normal or persistent right upper quadrant pain, pulmonary edema, or new onset headache unresponsive to medication um, or visual symptoms. And remember, eclampsia represents a step beyond this in seizures as well. Let's kind of think about the patient that maybe has some of these things, but it doesn't totally add up. And I think there are three primary culprits we could attack, Faye. We'll talk acute fatty liver of pregnancy, TTP-HUS, or thrombotic thrombocytopedic purpura for TTP, and hemolytic uremic syndrome for HUS. And then finally, we'll talk about systemic lupus erythematosus, or SLE, or lupus for short, um, and flare symptoms in pregnancy. Why don't I kick it over to you to talk about AFLP? Yeah, so acute fatty liver of pregnancy is exactly what it sounds like. You have acute fatty infiltrations of the liver, which typically occurs in the third trimester, but this can lead to fulminant hepatic failure. And it appears to be related to defects in fatty acid metabolism. So 20% of AFLP is associated with long-chain 3-hydroxyl-CoA dehydrogenase deficiency of the fetus. The incidence is really rare, so anywhere from 1 in 7,000 to 20,000 pregnancies. Some risk factors include what we just said before. So for example, things like fetal LCHAD deficiency, Fetal homozygosity actually renders it incapable of processing fatty acids, and the mother, who is typically heterozygous, has decreased function to keep up, so thus this infiltration. Of course, like anything in pregnancy, a prior history of AFLP is going to put you at higher risk for having it again. Also, other things that just kind of puts badness onto the you know pregnancy protoplasm, so multiple gestation, preeclampsia, HELP syndrome, because they can coexist, and then other things that uh, seem pretty random, like a male fetal sex, a low BMI of less than 20, or nulliparity. Typical presentation is usually in the third trimester, most commonly after 30 weeks. Often you're going to have a patient who comes in with very nonspecific symptoms, so nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, malaise, headache, anorexia, which again, you know, we feel like that's not necessarily something that we always you know, feel is something that is acute in pregnancy. Frequently, it will be present with hypertension with or without proteinuria and is reported to coexist with HELP syndrome in 20 to 40% of cases. Hypoglycemia is frequent on laboratories from impaired hepatic glucogenesis, but in addition to this, we are also going to see signs of acute liver failure, so things like jaundice, ascites, encephalopathy, and even DIC. Renal failure can occur in upwards of 90% of cases. So now that we've talked about, you know, what AFLP is and risk factors and presentation, Nick, talk to me a little bit about diagnosis. How do we diagnose AFLP? Yeah, so you mentioned, Faye, this fatty infiltration. And so typically you would do a liver biopsy to confirm that, but that's not really possible, especially with a pregnant patient who is critically ill. So AFLP is most commonly a clinical diagnosis. You could perform a biopsy, but again, it's rarely done. 
The clinical diagnosis, probably the most commonly referred to criteria, is something known as the Swansea criteria. Um, and depending on what you read, there may be a requirement for six to nine positive signs from the Swansea criteria to fulfill a diagnosis of AFLP. Most of the things that I read say that you need at least six things. Kind of these things are actually fairly vague in some circumstances, vomiting, abdominal pain, um, kind of other symptoms can include polydipsia, polyuria, encephalopathy, um, and then laboratory criteria such as elevated bilirubin, hypoglycemia, elevated urea, leukocytosis, ammonia elevations or transaminase elevations, renal impairment. We'll list all of the Swansea criteria on our website, but again, six are typically required for the diagnosis of AFLP in the absence of some other cause. Imaging can be performed, and ultrasound actually is part of the Swansea criteria or one of the things that you can use, but is generally of limited utility in diagnosis. If you do perform an ultrasound, you'll often see, again, ascites or a very bright echogenic liver on the the scan. The treatment of AFLP is supportive with critical care expertise. Um, you're going to have ongoing monitoring for the MELD score, or if you haven't thought about that since you were a third year on your medicine rotation, MELD is the model for end-stage liver disease. We'll have a calculator on the website for you to peruse, but a high MELD greater than or equal to 30 is associated with increased risk of maternal complications from AFLP. Hypoglycemia is often ongoing and critical during AFLP, so you often will need to infuse dextrose-containing fluids as your maintenance, and coagulopathy will need to be monitored and corrected for. Delivery should proceed rapidly. Labor induction is reasonable to do if you think that you can accomplish it within 24 hours and the disease is not otherwise rapidly progressing, but cesarean delivery outright should be considered otherwise. Betamethasone can be given for fetal lung maturity, but shouldn't delay delivery overall. Again, AFLP is a really, really critical illness. Um, magnesium can be given as indicated if you suspect coexistent preeclampsia help syndrome and or for cerebral palsy prophylaxis for the baby. Postpartum um, mortality in acute fatty liver is attributable to hemorrhage, liver failure, and kidney injury as the three primary things. You try to support until resolution, um, which is often within 7 to 10 days after delivery. One known potential and fatal complication of AFLP is hemorrhagic pancreatitis, and so following a lipase is an important thing to do in addition to your liver enzymes. Hepatic failure that's fulminant is pretty rare, though there are case reports at least of liver transplantation um, being necessary to get patients through AFLP. Finally, in the postpartum period, um, we mentioned that LCHAD deficiency earlier. Um, LCHAD deficiency is actually life-threatening for newborns, too. So if you do suspect AFLP, your pediatrician should definitely be aware because then they need to test the baby for difficulty with fatty acid metabolism, and that can be life-saving. So again, remember that as an association, even though it sounds like it's just going to be a CREOG question, it may actually help you save a mom and a baby. All right, Faye, why don't we move on to our next culprit, TTP and HUS? Yeah, so TTP and HUS are related but actually different diseases, and they're characterized by microangiopathic hemolysis, thrombocytopenia, acute renal failure, neurologic abnormalities, and fever. So TTP, or thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura, is caused by a deficiency in Adam's T13. Yeah, remember like that for all the way from medical school? 
So Adam's T13 is a protein that's involved in regulating blood clotting by cleaving von Willebrand factor from endothelial surfaces and at the site of vascular injury. This can be familiar or acquired and is characterized by marked thrombocytopenia where platelets are frequently less than 20K. HUS or hemolytic uremic syndrome can be caused by a variety of insults, but commonly shigatoxin from certain bacterial organisms as well as with abnormalities in complement system regulation. Renal failure is the dominating feature of HUS and tends to be particularly severe. So the presentation of these patients tend to be pretty vague. They'll have abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, headache, vision changes, confusion, or fever, which again can definitely be confused for preeclampsia except for that fever. And also the neurological changes tend to be much more significant compared to preeclampsia. They may also include bleeding, so things like nosebleeds or GI bleeding or petechiae or purpura, and also hematuria, particularly in HUS. And this can be present with or without hypertension. The diagnosis, you should really involve your hematology colleagues if there's suspicion. Early onset preeclampsia may raise suspicion. So if a patient is in that 20 to 26-weekish range, you may want to consider, is this actually something else? But of course, um, a flare from TTP or HUS can occur at any point. You do want to send for that Adams T13, but a lot of times this is not a lab that a lot of places will do automatically. It may be a send out. and may take days to come back. And so sometimes you may actually have to treat before you actually get some of your lab work back. In terms of treatment, plasma exchange is going to be that treatment for TTP. It's going to help remove those large multimers of von Willebrand factor and autoantibodies against Adams T13. Steroids may also help to calm the autoimmune system, and you can even consider splenectomy to avoid sequestration of platelets. Platelet transfusions, though, should be avoided. They may actually contribute to increased microvascular thrombus formation. And finally, in terms of delivery, it's not actually indicated immediately. Plex and other therapies can be given opportunity to work to see if the patient will improve. However, serial or frequent therapy is often indicated to continue pregnancy and prevent relapse. All right, let's move on to the last thing that we were going to talk about today, Nick, which is lupus. Yeah, so lupus is kind of never the answer on house, first of all. Um, if you watched <laughs> that show way back when, but it's an autoimmune disorder with really varying symptomatology, um, but can result in significant end organ damage. 30 to 40% of lupus patients also have a particular type of autoantibody called the antiphospholipid antibodies, but only 1% of patients will have antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, which is a disorder that's characterized by microangiopathy affecting multiple organ systems and with particularly high pregnancy risks, as we've talked about before in our episode on recurrent pregnancy loss. Diagnosis of lupus, classically, as I had learned in medical school, required at least four of the 11 American College of Rheumatology criteria. But in doing the background for this episode, I learned that actually there's a new system in 2019 that has a scoring system with even more factors to come up with a diagnosis of SLE where you have to have first an ANA that's positive or some other equivalent autoantibody test, and then you apply some additive clinical and laboratory criteria to obtain a score. And if that score is greater than 10, 
the patient has lupus. Um, it's significantly more complicated than what I remember and way too complicated for me to describe in a podcast. So we're just going to post the scoring criteria on the website. We've talked about antiphospholipids, antibody syndrome diagnostic criteria previously on the recurrent pregnancy loss episode, though remember quickly that it's one of two clinical criteria that's either a vascular thrombosis or a pregnancy morbidity, a laboratory criteria that is lupus anticoagulant, anticardiolipin antibody, or anti-beta-2 glycoprotein antibody present on two or more occasions at least 12 weeks apart. Again, we'll have those diagnostic criteria defined in full on the website rather than rehashing them right now. Fortunately, many patients with lupus will actually come into pregnancy with an established diagnosis. It's pretty unusual to diagnose lupus for the first time in pregnancy. So most of the time, rather than focusing on plugging in all of the scoring systems and all of that, you're actually going to be talking with your patient about their symptoms to determine if they're having a flare and trying to distinguish that from preeclampsia. Typically in that evaluation, you're going to be using a serum marker for rheumatologic disease. Some of the most common for these that rheumatologists will follow include hypocomplementemia, particularly of C3 and C4, and anti-double-stranded DNA antibody levels. The symptoms of lupus are vague um, that you may remember from the rheumatologic criteria um, and generally have overlap with preeclampsia too. Um, so it can be really hard to distinguish and using those laboratories if they're available to you can be really, really helpful. The treatment for lupus, first a preventive, I guess. If you know that a patient has lupus from the outset of pregnancy, those patients should definitely be on aspirin for preeclampsia prevention. In the acute flare in pregnancy, steroids are often used first line, something like prednisone. Patients may continue on disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs or DMARDs through pregnancy. Some of those safe medications can include azathioprine, hydroxychloroquine, and then there's also really encouraging data for immunomodulating antibodies, things like adalimumab or Humira. Um, for antiphospholipid antibody syndrome in particular, you should also be placing those patients on low molecular weight heparin for the prevention of venous thromboembolism and pregnancy morbidity. All right, Faye, I think that does it for kind of our discussion today on these um, various imitators of preeclampsia. I think one final thing that I want to shout out before we summarize is that we'll post some tables from Dr. Sabai's article on our website that are really nice comparison and contrast um, of signs, symptoms, and lab criteria from all of these different diseases. And while the data from his article is a little old at this point, it helps serve as a great reference point for your differential diagnosis when it doesn't just seem like preeclampsia. All right, so let's summarize. Sure. So we first started this podcast by talking about diagnosing preeclampsia and thinking about what other types of diseases there can be. So remember, preeclampsia is a syndrome, meaning that it's a complex of symptoms and physical findings that indicate a specific condition, but for which a cause isn't necessarily understood. Given this, we already know that the diagnosis of preeclampsia with severe features includes 
elevated blood pressures with severe features, including things like severe range blood pressures, as well as other signs of end organ damage, like things like low platelets, elevated creatinine, elevated LFTs, pulmonary edema, or new onset neurological symptoms. However, if you were to take pregnancy out of the equation, when you think about all these signs and symptoms of preeclampsia, you can think of lots of things that could potentially also cause some of these signs and symptoms. And so Today, we decided to focus on three specific things like AFLP, TTPHUS, and lupus. We started talking about AFLP, which is exactly what it sounds like, an acute fatty infiltration of the liver typically occurring in a third trimester and appears to be related to defects in fatty acid metabolism. 20% of AFLP is associated with a deficiency in an enzyme called long-chain 3-hydroxyacyl-CoA dehydrogenase, or LCHAD for short, in the fetus. The typical presentation is in the third trimester after 30 weeks most commonly and is often nonspecific with things like nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, malaise, headaches. There's often coexistent preeclampsia or HELP syndrome in 20 to 40% of cases. Hypoglycemia is also frequently seen. Signs of acute liver failure like jaundice, ascites, and then renal failure is also very, very common. Diagnosis can be done clinically because most of the time these acute patients will not undergo a liver biopsy, though certainly biopsy can be performed. We usually will use the Swansea criteria um, to diagnose AFLP, where ranges depending on reading from six to nine positive signs, depending on what you look at. Uh, most typically, you just need six of the following positive signs. However, it's supposed to be done in patients without HELP syndrome or preeclampsia, which can limit its utility because, as we said before, HELP syndrome can occur in 20 to 40% of these cases. The treatment of AFLP is supportive with help from our critical care colleagues. Remember to monitor their MELD score, and as a high MELD score is associated with increased risk of maternal complications, and also remember to deliver these patients. While labor induction is reasonable in someone that can quickly have a vaginal delivery, cesarean delivery outright should also be considered. You can consider giving beta-methasone as well as magnesium, um, but this should not delay uh, delivery. Postpartum-wise, mortality from AFLP can be attributed to things like hemorrhage, liver failure, and kidney injury, though usually it will resolve within 7 to 10 days. However, it can lead to other complications like hemorrhagic pancreatitis, which could, which could be fatal, and also some of these patients may require liver transplantation. LCHAT deficiency testing should also be pursued in the infant. We next talked about thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura, TTP, and hemolytic uremic syndrome, HUS, are related but different diseases characterized by microangiopathic hemolysis, thrombocytopenia, acute renal failure, neurologic abnormalities, and fever. TTP is caused by an acquired or hereditary deficiency in Adams T13, which is a protein involved in blood clotting, and HUS can be caused by a variety of things, but most commonly is associated with shigatoxin from certain bacterial organisms, as well as with abnormalities in complement system regulation. The presentation of TTP and HUS also tends to be vague. Again, remember those five organ systems that are involved, hemolysis, thrombocytopenia, renal failure, neurologic abnormalities like confusion, fevers, abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting can also be part of the initial presentation and can also come with or without hypertension. Early onset preeclampsia in the 20 to 26-ish range should raise your suspicion, and if you have a suspicion, involve your hematology colleagues early. Treatment includes plasma exchange um, for patients with TTP, steroids, in severe cases splenectomy could also be considered, platelet transfusions should specifically be avoided as this may increase morbidity related to microvascular thrombi. 
Delivery is not indicated immediately for these patients as plasma exchange, steroids, and other therapies could be given the opportunity to work, um, but serial or frequent therapy is often indicated to be able to continue pregnancy without relapse. The last imitator of preeclampsia we discussed is lupus or antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. Remember that lupus is an autoimmune disorder with many symptomatologies but can result in significant end organ damage. Some of these patients will also have antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, a disorder that's characterized by microangiopathy affecting multiple organ systems and particularly high-risk pregnancies. We will post the diagnosis criteria for both APA-LAS as well as lupus on our website because it involves a lot of scoring systems. And understand that most of the time people will come into pregnancy already having been diagnosed with lupus and therefore you're just trying to distinguish whether or not they're having a flare based on their symptoms as well as serum markers like hypocomplementemia or anti-double-strand DNA antibody levels. Symptoms overall are vague um, as we discussed previously. You can treat lupus if you know from the outset of pregnancy, first with aspirin for preeclampsia prevention. You can also use steroids, DMARDs, and also in patients with APLS, make sure that you're treating them with low molecular weight heparin for prevention of VTEs and pregnancy morbidity. All right. I think that does it for today. So once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Creags Over Coffee. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our other episodes, go ahead and go on to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, any of our other favorite podcatchers, and give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us online on Twitter at CriogsOverCoff1, on Instagram and Facebook at CriogsOverCoffee, or if you love the show, head over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Send us some love and we'll send you some swag. If you need to remember the diagnostic criteria for preeclampsia, as well as lupus and APLS, go ahead and go onto our website. We'll have all of that posted, www.creogsovercoffee.com. If you have a correction for this episode, any of our previous episodes, or a suggestion for a future episode, email us, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. <laughs>